0: A Podcast One Production. Oh, that's a curly one. The big Questions. John, welcome to The Big Questions. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to the beginning. Take us back to the young John Urschel, your numerical side. As a maths nerd myself, I can remember at the age of like six or seven just loving maths and doing it different. I asked my second grade teacher, why do the times tables stop at 12? Why don't we do 13s and 14s? Which wasn't a very popular question to ask in a room of seven-year-olds. What about yourself? When can you first remember your numerical bent?
1: So, you know, my memories only go so far back, but, you know, I've been told that even when I was, you know, very, very little... You know, I was always sort of into, you know, quantitative things. Like uh, I always like I would always try to recognize shapes I knew like out in the world. This was like a game I would play, at least I'm told, when I was very, very little. What was your family like growing up? Uh, My mother mainly raised me and uh, she she thought education was very important. And she saw that uh, she saw that I was good at math. And so she sort of pushed math.
0: Was it something that you wanted just more and more of? Did you race ahead of your peers or did you just stay at the same level but do 10 times as much out of the thrill of it?
1: So I would stay at the same sort of like uh, school level, but I would always sort of want to learn more. And so I would always study at home like grades above what we were doing in school, but just for, for, for fun, you know?
0: Yeah, and, and, that, and that's the thing a lot of people don't understand that if, if – if you love the world of numbers, if mathematics speaks to you, that's not that's not a chore. There are some people who think about doing extra maths homework that hadn't been set as almost torturous. But if it's your language, that's just probably some of the most enjoyable moments of the day for you.
1: Yeah, it's true, and uh, you know, I have to say, I actually uh, I share their sentiment in many ways because doing uh, doing maths homework was actually quite torturous for me. <laughs> it was it was extremely sort of you know tedious and boring and. Uh, you know, what I really enjoyed was sort of learning about new maths, learning sort of new ideas, new techniques, and trying to solve sort of new problems. I really didn't like, uh, I didn't like sort of obscene amounts of repetition.
0: Just ticking the boxes of stuff you knew you could already do. Yeah, exactly. Now, the other component of you, or well, one of the other facets of you is you're physically a, a beast of a man. What are your stats in the American... Measurements in terms of feet and pounds.
1: Yes. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm a shell of myself somewhat now, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm six 6'4", and when I was playing, you know, I was about uh, 310 pounds.
0: 310. So at a rate of 2.2, 2, that's about 140 kilos. I'm presuming not much of it flab and six foot four puts you in there. Okay. Were you always physically developed well beyond people of your age? Did you always have an athletic side?
1: No. So my athletic side didn't really come until high school. I, uh, you know, I didn't play a lot of sports when I was younger and I really was more sort of interested in, uh, puzzles. I mean, really as a kid, all I wanted to do was puzzles all day. What sort of puzzles? Uh, whether it be like logic puzzles, Sudoku puzzles, whether it be uh, like uh, actual like um, physical, you know, puzzles, recreating a picture, whether it be, you know, playing games like playing Monopoly with people, anything that sort of, you know, felt like there was something to be solved or something to be, you know, to try to maximize i uh, I really
0: enjoyed, but then at high school, do you just suddenly wake up one day and you are massively bigger than you were the day before, or what 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 happened? It must have been quite a growth spurt.
1: No, no, so I was always big, but uh, you know sports was never like a huge part of what I did. I mean, in middle school i uh, you know I played some soccer, I played some lacrosse, and I was decently good, but uh, I started playing football uh when I reached high school, and I hadn't played football before, so sort of my my you know athletic talent didn't really come out until high school because it turned out what I was really, really good at was hitting people hmm. and you you can't really do that in any sport other than football. so like that part of my talent didn't really show until I played football
0: uh, as a six foot five hundred and forty kilo lacrosse machine, you could have redefined the modern game, couldn't you?
1: yeah, I mean, this is true, but in many ways i uh I think I I had some issues playing the game. I mean, my main issue was uh, I did catch a lot of
0: penalties. (laughs) Caught
1: a lot of penalties. But uh, one thing that I was actually quite good at, and I mean, I'd say the first sport that I was very good at was uh, box lacrosse.
0: Box lacrosse.
1: Yes, I uh, I was a very good box lacrosse player. So this is lacrosse, but now instead of, you know, played on, you know, it could be considered like a variant of a soccer or a football field. Mm-hmm. Now you're playing lacrosse on a hockey rink, but with the ice removed. All right. So boxed in. Yeah. So boxed in is called uh, box lacrosse. And, uh, the main difference in the sport is that, you know, it's
0: much sort of
1: tighter spaces is much quicker and it's much more violent. <laughs> like- so you don't get penalties for, you know, knocking people over.
0: Yeah, you can, you can just bash them into the side of the rink in the same way that ice hockey players do with, with exactly. great skill we witness. That's, that's the fact because we, we in Australia, we, we have a steady diet of American sport if we wish to watch it, but in some ways we don't understand the deeply cultural aspect. Like college football, for example, most Australians would not know that there are the equivalent of our high school or early university age football games going on with tens of thousands... Of people attending week in week out in gigantic stadiums. Did you play college football before your NFL career?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. So I played at a place called Penn State. One of the big ones. Yes, this is one of the big ones. I would play, you know, every Saturday in front of over a hundred thousand fans.
0: Every Saturday in front of over one hundred thousand fans. To, to us in Australia, that sounds just almost absurd what's it like to be part of
1: no it's uh, it's absolutely amazing i can say for in- i mean for instance i played uh, i played in the national football league so i played professionally but never when i played professionally did i play in front of as many fans as i did when i played in college
0: what's it like walking around the college campus as one of the significant players in the college football team i presume you're just a Part of a revered species of student.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's true. It's it's nice when the sort of the whole university community actually sort of you know circles around sort of the football team and really you know the idea of like a football game between two universities is like uh, it's like you know the uni itself is really sort of
0: behind the football team. You do hear stories occasionally of some students in some of the elite football teams who, and I mean no disrespect to them, but might not really be crushing their marks in subjects at college and might be getting a little bit of a fairly interactive uh, tuition support from other students and teachers, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. I presume that wasn't the case for you. I presume you were doing all right academically while you were there at Penn State
1: yeah, you know i was I was managing just fine, but uh, it it is true that this does happen, and you know there's reasons for this. One, perhaps you know you have a you have a football player who maybe isn't that interested in academics. Maybe he didn't even want to go to college. But the difference is there's no sort of very good uh, minor league football leagues. So if you want to be a professional football player, you actually have to go
0: to college. It, it is is—it is pretty much the only sort of feeder pathway into the big time.
1: Yes, the college football system is the is the feeder. So even if you don't want to go to college, if you want to be a professional football player, you need to play on a college team, and so you need to pass classes, even if you have no interest in
0: a college degree. You, no need to name names, John, but did you know that some of your colleagues at Penn State maybe were – you know, in inverted commas, only just scraping by, wink, wink, in the academic sense?
1: So at Penn State, it was a really sort of interesting culture because, I don't know, I've talked to, so I have friends who went to other big time universities. And I think Penn State was actually the exception in that Penn State actually made sure everyone graduated. Like our graduation rates were like the highest in the country like 90 something percent graduation rates. But I should say that, you know, for the audience listening, this is the exception. And it's much more common to have graduation rates, which for big time programs might be, you know, lower like 70% or 60% or lower in some circumstances. But at Penn State, even if a student sort of wasn't interested in, you know, getting a college degree, the uh, sort of academic advisors made them interested. They force them to be
0: interested. So, because there's a tension there, isn't there? That I mean, you, you you're dedicating everything you can to your football if you want to be an elite amongst the elite.
1: Mm-hmm. At the
0: same time, even those who many of those who try as hard as they can will miss out, and it would be better off for them if they have some other life skills or accreditation to move onwards. So that must be a a, a delicate sort of dance in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even so, even for sort of students who you know who want a college education who you know are interested in getting some degree they even struggle somewhat because football just takes up so much time it's it's truly like a full-time job and hmm. you know even for them their sort of their marks
0: suffer because of football we'll talk about that soon because you were doing the full-time job of football and academia at the level beyond just college, but before we get there, for for my Australian listeners, John, you played mainly, am I right, as a guard and a centre? Yes. We've seen American football. Lots of guys come on, they do some stuff, they go off. Other guys come on, they do some stuff, they go off. To a a real outsider, what do the guard or centre, what's guard and centre 101? What's your basic role? My
1: basic role is, so I'm on the side of, I'm on the sort of team which has the ball and my main role is to always protect the person with the ball so to hit people who are trying to get to the person with the ball in uh american football there are two ways that sort of someone can sort of be trying to uh advance the football one is they can try to throw it downfield And the other is that they can try to run it downfield. And so if someone's trying to run the football downfield, then I'm actively trying to sort of block people and push people to make room for this runner to run downfield.
0: Quarterback gets the ball to me. I'm fast, but I'm not that tough. I want to get over there. Hey, John, do me a favor. Can you please clear a path so I can get over there? Exactly.
1: So the other role is, okay, quarterback gets the ball and now he wants to throw it to someone but it takes time. Maybe you know it takes a couple seconds. So while the quarterback has the ball, he's just standing in the field. And, and I lots need- of
0: guys on the other team would really like to belt him if they had the opportunity. Exactly. And I need to stop them
1: from getting to him. So my whole sort of job is to do one of two things, either actively try to shield a stationary person or try to push and make room for someone to sort of run somewhere.
0: The quarterback within the rules would the quarterback have the option of fooling everyone and one time throw the ball to john urschel instead of the guys he's normally meant to throw it to and did you ever get the ball thrown to you often so
1: it uh only in uh strange situations because of eligibility and ineligibility rules but i did uh i did get a ball thrown to me once (laughs) once just once because (laughs) it's a very rare occurrence (laughs)
0: Can you remember the game? Can you remember the moment? Yeah,
1: yeah. We were playing the uh, Arizona Cardinals, and I believe it was Monday Night Football.
0: Oh, if you're going to get one touch in your life, mate, that's the one to get, isn't it? I got the one touch. Well, let's talk about – we'll get to the mathematics soon because these come back together very soon. But going from college to the NFL, how hard is that? Is that what they call the combine or or these days starting to get a little bit of the draft televised in Australia – Is it just a brutal livestock fest, that whole idea of being looked at and being selected? How does that work?
1: Oh, absolutely. So imagine, you know, you have all these people who are playing college ball. It's like, you know, imagine, you know, you have all these players in the minor leagues and they all think they should be going pro. They all think they should be going to the major leagues. And so you have tons of players and, you know, teams really look at it like sort of you get treated like cattle like they take you to the hospital and you know doctors sort of they sort of poke and prod you and pull things and just you're sort of like a piece of meat and it's always like a sort of you're in line and then you do what you're supposed to do and then they sort of they take down all the stats on you they can and then
0: that's how it goes. Were you always a pretty good chance to make the NFL? Were you a long shot? Were you in that middle pool of Yeah, I might, yeah, I might not. What were your thoughts going into that sort of crucial weeks and months where you would be selected or not?
1: So sort of when I finished my college career, I was uh, pretty much close to a lock to uh, sort of be drafted Mm -hmm. into into the NFL. But, you know, when I started my college career, this was a very far off thing.
0: What did you do in that time? How did you go from far off to a lock?
1: Well, I worked. Uh, I worked really, really hard. I, uh, you know, I've got no shame in the fact that uh, I know I'm a much sort of better math talent than football talent. And you know, in college, math came very easily, but football, I really had to work at
0: to improve. I'll get to the math in a moment because it's amazing the way these two parts come back together. But just what can you tell us about your first game in the NFL? What's the, what's the emotional and mental state like getting ready to? run out and belt someone for the first time at the elite level?
1: Oh, it's, there's, it's, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just this amazing feeling to sort of, no matter what sport you play, to be able to have the feeling that you are playing at the elite level of the sport you've been playing for many, many years. And to feel that you are, you know, an elite athlete in, you know, your discipline It's a, you know, it's a really, it's an amazing feeling.
0: But at the same time, you still have this part of you, this, this numerical side, this mathematical side at which you're clearly gifted. You applied, is it right, to MIT? You don't muck around here, John, one of the leading schools in the world to continue to study math. Where were you on your NFL journey at that stage?
1: So I had just finished my first year in the NFL.
0: Why then did the maths come calling again? I would have thought you'd have a, a fairly full plate as a full-time professional athlete in one of the world's biggest and most competitive leagues.
1: Well, I, uh, I felt like I was selling myself short. I felt like I was selling my math career short because in many ways math is also somewhat of a young person's
0: game. And yes yes, it, yes. It, 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 explain more of that to the listeners. you're absolutely correct. Yeah,
1: so uh, this isn't something that people tend to think about, but uh, you know you're often sharpest when you're younger and uh, you know it takes you know a decent amount of time to get started in a math career. It's not unlike you know training to become a doctor or a surgeon. you know it takes many years and if you put this off, you know then your sort of career just gets pushed back and pushed back.
0: It's it's and often said if you haven't announced yourself to the world of mathematics by the age of forty, then yes. you probably never will. You can keep doing amazing work after forty, but normally people who mm-hmm. go on to make profound impacts in mathematics, as as I put it, sometimes younger mathematicians ask brilliantly naive or brilliantly stupid questions because they haven't mm-hmm. spent thirty years in one narrow niche thinking this is always the way it's been done. That that naivety sometimes brings a perspective that, that shakes up the, the the established way a little bit.
1: No, I mean, absolutely. And this is also evidenced by the fact that uh, many of the major awards in mathematics are only awarded to mathematicians under the age of 40. We're
0: for very instance, excited to show the Fields Medal. One of our guys yes. got it this year. We are jumping around about Mr Venkatesh. Well played, son.
1: Yes, yes. The Fields Medal and also the Nevalina Prize are both only for mathematicians under the age of forty. No, I actually heard about your uh, Fields Medalist. This is a uh, this is a random sort of thing, but I was uh, I was at this uh, event called the Heidelberg Laureate Forum, which yes. Oh, so you're aware of this
0: in Lindau? I've been lucky enough to go myself a few years ago. It's a collection ah. of Nobel laureates come together once a year and talk to young researchers in different fields and give them career advice and in inspirational talks. You were at you're at Lindau. Yeah, yeah,
1: I was there. I was at the Heidelberg Laureate Forum, and while I was there, I actually met a bunch of Aussies—great, great people. And in fact, we were hanging out the whole time I was there, and so I got to learn a lot about sort of maths, sort of in Australia.
0: So you, this calling comes to you to re-engage your mathematical side, but it's—it's it's one thing while you're playing NFL football to think, look, I'll keep my hand in, I'll read a few books, etc. But mm-hmm. to actually apply to study at MIT. While playing professional football, there's there's nothing given about that at all. From what I understand, your application was quite challenging in that sense, both in the timing of when it arrived, etc. What happened at MIT's end for you to be accepted on this unusual pathway?
1: Uh, I uh, I can't speak to that. I don't know how the process went, but uh, you know, I, I applied. I uh, I only applied to MIT. It was the place I knew I wanted to go, and. I thought that, you know, I thought, you know, at the time I had already done what I considered to be some quite good research. And so I thought, you know, my strong research paired with respected mathematicians who would vouch for me, this is usually sufficient for, you know,
0: for someone to be accepted. But you can't, from what I understand, in the course you wanted to apply for, you can't go part-time. You can't spread it out over yes. additional years. So you were facing the reality of playing full-time professional football. Mm-hmm. While taking on an equivalent full-time student load in higher mathematics at MIT, is that is that a yin yang balance, or is that a just a, a a gigantic workload to take on?
1: It's a gigantic workload and
0: it's <laughs>
1: uh, yeah yeah it's one of those things where, you know, like for instance, you know college when I played college football and I did college maths, you know, i uh, I was very, very busy, but I enjoyed it. and mm you know i never really felt overwhelmed doing professional football and the phd at mit is either one of the best decisions i've ever made or one of the worst decisions because i was i was just completely over i was yeah i was very very sort
0: of busy the big questions i i read one article that suggested you you structured your course load around if the subject had a textbook and homework assignments given online, then I don't physically need to be there for a lot of the lectures. I could build it around that. Talk us through, if, you, if the Ravens played on a Sunday mid-afternoon, mm-hmm. what did you do? How, how did you squeeze the maths in over the next few days with training and recovery and things like that?
1: Right. So the NFL schedule is such that, at least for the team I was on, we would play on Sunday. You know, We're done maybe late Sunday afternoon. And we have monday off and maybe we don't meet until tuesday sort of around noon and so from sunday after the game until tuesday at about noon i would just be working
0: like a dog (laughs)
1: like a dog to try to complete all my assignments in like two days time and read everything i needed to
0: all your teammates are just there doing a bit of pilates Getting exactly, a just hanging
1: out, playing some video
0: games. You Posting know, doing... photos on Instagram about how good they were on the weekend, and you are smashing through some serious algebra. Yes. Is it true that your professor, Scott Sheffield, would occasionally call the role in class uh, when returning assignments, call out your name and say, quote, well, we know he's not here today, end quote.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, this is, uh, this is what I was told. This is what I was told that he uh, he quite enjoyed sort of telling this joke over and over again.
0: Include in, that was that a class that you only got to once in the entire semester because your team yes. had to buy that week.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So I made it once.
0: How'd you go in that course? Uh good. I got I got an <laughs> A. It was uh, it was an interesting course. <laughs> so incredible workload. Were there times where you thought I don't know if I can do this, or was there something about? challenging both your body and your mind at the elite level that it did as brutal as it was did it all sort of click and work
1: Ah, uh, i mean it it all worked but uh i was quite overworked i think
0: was your football team aware of the level of study you were completing or did they just think you were doing the, the right thing and rounding yourself out as a person and, and and doing a bit of academic work on the side
1: well they didn't uh they didn't really quite they didn't ask what sort of how my going back to school worked, and so if you don't ask, I
0: you know I don't feel a need to tell you. They didn't ask in the sense of they just assumed you weren't doing a PhD in higher mathematics at MIT.
1: So they knew I was doing a PhD in maths at MIT, but uh, you know in the NFL, <laughs> like uh, so they knew. But you know in the NFL, you uh, you know oftentimes you know guys go to the NFL and they don't have their degrees from their college uni. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things the NFL does is they do promote sort of players going back to school in the spring semester, because in the NFL, we get about maybe three months total off in the year, around three months. And that time sort of matches up very, very well with the spring semester of like the American academic calendar.
0: How did your fellow Ravens players Deal with what you were doing. Were they aware? Did you occasionally, you know, in some defensive tactics meeting, just drop in a bit of algebraic geometry, or say, look, if you look at this in five dimensions, it makes a lot more sense, or anything like that?
1: Uh no, no. Somehow, uh, you know, somehow, algebraic geometry didn't really show up in, uh, <laughs> in football. Not even real algebraic geometry, you know. <laughs>
0: Let alone the you interesting think stuff. At least-
1: You would think at least real algebraic geometry, but sadly, it didn't show up anywhere. I was very disappointed.
0: Walk us through that one magic Monday night, John Urschel, uh, against the Arizona Diamondbacks when you uh, took possession of the footy, not just building into people, but the football landed in your hands. What happened?
1: Uh, I ran for a little bit, and I was tackled quite quite quickly, quite quickly. I mean, uh, you know, I put two hands on the ball. One of these things, I fell forward when I was tackled, which I was pleased with, but uh, no, I was not breaking any tackles, but, you know, I gained some yards.
0: There must have been a small part of you that thought, wow, I've, you know, like I can add that to my footballing CV. I've made, is that called a carry? You've made a carry? A catch. A catch. Yeah. Your retirement came as a shock to some people. Mm-hmm. Talk us through the process of deciding I think I'm done here. When I've spoken to a lot of athletes, they've said didn't come as a single bolt in the blue moment. It was a whisper that then went away, came back a bit stronger, went away, and just wouldn't stop. What was what was your process of coming to the decision that you weren't going to play anymore? What was that like, John?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, exactly as you said. That, uh, Yeah, no one's actually ever mentioned it like that to me, but I think that's, uh, you know, you've clearly been talking to some retired athletes because it really is sort of, you know, it's a whisper—it's a thing you start thinking about, and then you say, "Well, maybe not." And then you start thinking about it more, and you say, "Well, maybe not." And uh, the main thing that got me thinking about it is, I uh, at the time, I uh, I knew I was going to become a father shortly, and so this got me thinking about longevity, and you know, I was you know sort of deciding back and forth. I had already decided that you know, if I was going to play another season, this would be my last, but I wasn't sure if I was even going to play another season.
0: At the time, well, look, sort of concurrently, as far as I understand it, in American sports and football, there was some landmark research into concussion and and head knocks and and potential long-term effects uh, to the brain, et cetera, released. That coincides with the sort of time that you announced your retirement. How strong was the link? between those two things because I've read varying reports on the subject-hmm
1: so it's certainly involved I would say it's far from causation I mean I had been thinking about this well before this came out but of course it's something you know you need to keep in mind but uh, I'm uh, I'm not uh, I'm not a very impulsive person so this was this was something I had already been thinking about for quite some time but you know when something like that comes out, Of course, you need to take it into account when you think about decisions like this.
0: How's the maths going now that you're dedicating, apart from the fatherhood, I guess, your full attention to the subject? Do you just feel it blossoming inside you?
1: Yeah, it's going quite well. I think the main thing that I can say I've benefited from is I'm not necessarily writing more papers, but the thing I'm very pleased about is I'm learning so much more. I know so much more than I used to. I'm just... I'm always learning about new areas of maths, new sort of techniques, reading new papers. And I can say that I'm definitely learning much, much more, which sort of helps you
0: tackle sort of big problems. Because of what a lot of people who haven't done higher math don't understand, a lot of people through their their high school days think of maths as one big sort of block of a subject. But once you push it further, it goes off into different sort of branch lines and and subjects, and you can have two very, very good mathematicians who work in quite different fields who might not know that much about each other's work at all. The analogy I sometimes give is if you had a friend who's studying French and a friend who's studying Hebrew, you can't say, well, they're both languages, why don't you guys chat about it? Yeah, of course. But great mathematics and deep mathematics often involves, doesn't it, bringing together skills from different areas or being able to see a problem that's framed in one language as being the same as a problem framed in another field of mathematics and, and joining the two together. So that process of discovery is really exciting for the mathematician.
1: Yes, of course. And so this is why, you know, it's been very important to me to sort of feel like I'm becoming, you know, more expert in multiple seemingly disjoint areas of maths, because oftentimes having these different perspectives can be extremely useful.
0: Let me ask you a couple of quick questions, if it's all right, John, in wrapping up on subjects. Yeah, of course. Outside of the direct ones, as we speak, the votes are being cast in the American midterm elections, which people are saying are, you know, so well attended this time around. So much focus are uh, almost a lightning rod for America at the moment. As as a man of science, mm-hmm. we sometimes hear, you know, mathematics is the most pure of the sciences in some ways. We sometimes hear in America, there's almost a sense that science is under attack. That the process of scientific endeavour, the process of scientific thought, is almost derided. As I don't want to hear from experts anymore. What's it like being a mathematician and a scientist in in America in the in the twenty teens?
1: Yeah, it's a you know, it's a good question because, well, I would say you know, I don't think it's too extreme to say in sort of the past sort of you know three or four years, there's been this big sort of. Uh, I don't know, polarization of sort of belief systems in America. And in fact, sort of on both sides, you see this sort of, uh, sort of staunch belief in their own, in your own system and sort of a unwillingness to sort of listen to sort of evidence to the contrary. And so this has led to sort of what I feel is quite a divided America politically. And, you know, has led to sort of very sort of, uh, I don't know, very serious, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but uh, I guess of sort of all my sort of years being in the United States, in the past couple of years, I feel that America seems the most divided that it ever has that I can remember.
0: I heard someone quite recently that they called it the 38% phenomenon, that when when the current president might do something that on the face of it really seems quite radical and out there and, and, and has tremendous opposition initially, after a while it all bubbles down and about a 38% of the public will just back it, that rump of Trump support will just back it and go, yep, that's fine, this is the side we're on, we won't be shaken from that. And in a field where with mathematics you're looking purely at what exists in front of you, I'm presuming it's frustrating in some ways to see people who won't just think about an individual issue or what's going on to form an opinion. They'll just go, "Sorry, mate, this is the side I'm on. You can't shake me from that."
1: Yeah, that's a it's a very dangerous sort of it's a dangerous sort of uh, mentality to have. I think, and I mean, you certainly see this mentality among sort of right wing people. Well, well, not all right-wing people, but sort of the sort of extremes. You see this within the right wing, I should say. But, uh, you know, less sort of televised. I also believe you see this in the left wing as well. And I think it's it's a scary thing when sort of a large proportion of Americans on both sides sort of have unwillingness to sort of – look at and really think about evidence to the contrary of their beliefs.
0: One of the controversial issues in the sporting world from which you you have emerged was that of players taking the knee during the national anthem, Mm -hmm. Uh, in particular African-American players or players in solidarity with African-American players, Mm -hmm. shining a light on broader issues of race relations, relations between the African-American community and and the justice system, et cetera by kneeling during the National Anthem. Some people say that is everything that's great about America. That is freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. That is your right Mm -hmm. to stand or kneel. Others saying that is just outrageous disrespect for the flag and for people who've died for the flag. These players should be suspended or expelled from the competition. You would have have played in games where players took the knee?
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, I did.
0: What's it like to be a bystander or an active or inactive participant in you know, in a sort of flashpoint moment of politics meets sport like that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, sports has a, has a history of, you know, intertwining with politics at times. I mean, this is, this is not a new thing. I mean, even, you know, looking back to, you know, sort of like
0: the raised fist in the Olympics. 1968, the Black Power salute. The Aussie, Peter Norman, who won the silver medal in between, Carlos and Smith was the person standing there as the two, the first and third place gentlemen on the podium? Did the black Power salute? Yeah, we're at 50 years this year?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And so this is not this is not a new thing. And I have to admit that uh, I have been asked about this by friends, and I do have sort of a surprising ignorance, and I think I think perhaps the majority of people do as well. I don't know enough about sort of law to be able to answer the question about is the NFL actually legally allowed to fire or suspend or punish players for doing this? I actually don't know the answer to this. But, you know, of course, you know, I support sort of being in a country where people
0: have the choice to not stand for the national anthem. Did any players on your team ever take the knee during the anthem? Uh, no, I don't believe so. I've always wondered if it was the sort of thing that was discussed openly in the dressing room beforehand, or if a player did it, it was just something they did in their own, on, on the spur of the moment or in in their own council.
1: You know, now that I think about it, maybe, maybe a couple players did do it once, but this may perhaps have been the weekend in which many players did it, and so this never came up or was discussed but I can't actually think of an instance. Like maybe someone did, but I, the fact that I can't think of it means sort of how little it was discussed.
0: One thing you also do like doing in your spare time is shuffling pieces around uh, a chessboard. Uh, another thing you and I have in common, it's yes. that, that beautiful game of aggression and defense, of bashing and subtlety on the uh, 64 squares. You recently picked up a prize in an under-1600-point division of a competition, which, and I mean, no, no offense in saying that means that's a sort of, that's a good competent player level on the way to maybe being a, a higher level player. Are you still playing the occasional game of chess, John?
1: I, uh, so I still, I still play chess, but I haven't actually played in a sort of official, uh, capacity in quite some time and over, I think it's probably been over seven months. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when I stopped playing, I think I'm around 1750 now. Wow. Yeah, but I uh, I still feel – I must admit, I still feel underrated. I mean I, uh, I've only played – I've played less than 20 games and I feel underrated. And I think I'm not unjustified in saying that because hmm. over my sort of chess career, I have a very strange statistic, which is I've never – Lost a game to someone. No, I've never lost or drawn a game to anyone lower rated than me at the time.
0: Uh huh. So you're still finding your level.
1: So I feel like I'm still finding my level, and uh, my rating's still provisional. And I actually intend to start playing more. I think in December I'll try to play, and hopefully I want to, uh, you know, get above eighteen hundred before the year's out.
0: Is there any potential, even though you say you've now, you're now a, a shadow of the man you used to be, the 140 kilos, 6 foot 4, do you still have the potential occasionally across the board just to give it a bit of a bicep flex or something and, and in any way intimidate your opponent? Oh, certainly,
1: certainly. I mean, I'm a, listen, I'm a shell of my NFL self, but uh, no, amongst sort of, you know, amongst mortals, I can still, you know, I can still <laughs> impose myself.
0: I I can picture you leaning back, putting the hands behind the head and just a sort of innocent little bicep pop just after you've made it. You've made a move, then you lean back, show off those guns and there's a subtle warning of maybe you don't want to go there, my friend.
1: No, I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, if I'm playing, you know, I'm playing another, I'm playing some guy, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I give a little bit of intimidation. But uh, the humbling thing in chess is often, you know, you can be playing kids, yep. and you know you have to you have to treat them kindly because although they're strong chess players, you know they're children still. So you know they lose sometimes, they cry, things like that.
0: And there's every chance that that 13 year old is going to skin you across the board, yeah, no matter how good your bicep flex is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't care how big my biceps are. Perhaps, I mean, I know for a fact that there's uh, you know there's probably yeah, I know certainly there's 11 or 10 year olds who are much stronger chess players than I am. And these kids often become future world champions or future, you know, top 10 players in the world.
0: It has been wonderful speaking with you, John. Let me give you one closing question. It's always one of those hypothetical situations. You Mm -hmm. can look back at the end of, you know, in your retirement years with grandkids sitting on your knee on the porch and either tell them about the day that you got that Super Bowl ring you're wearing Because you took that catch, you took that carry, and you ran 20 yards for the winning touchdown in Mm -hmm. the Super Bowl. Or you can dust off your Fields medal. Fields medal. Bring it out. and I'm ending
1: it right now. I'm dusting out the Fields medal,
0: man. You're taking a Fields medal over a Super Bowl ring ran the, you ran the winning touchdown, John.
1: Are you kidding? I'm pulling that Fields medal out, man. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Uh, I hoped, and I I was quietly confident that would be your answer. It has been wonderful to speak with you today, John Osher. You are an inspiration, mate, for lots of young kids who feel that little mathematical calling that you did at an early age. I hope you realise the role model you must be to thousands of them.
1: I uh, No, I I recognise the position I'm in, and I do try to be sort of the best role model I can. And, you know, of course, when you asked to do this interview, I... uh, (laughs) I, you know, I jumped at the chance because, you know, I know that sort of, you know,
0: promoting maths in Australia is, you know, is very important. I look forward to reading the citation for the Fields Medal. I look forward to reading the Urschel Conjecture Becoming the Urschel Theorem. Best of luck with it. May the journey continue to be a fascinating one for you as it has been so far. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.